Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Turn it on. Oh, there we go. We're on, right. Alright, well, what a solemn assembly. I've never seen such a solemn assembly in all my life, considering it's Christmas. So I thought I'd just liven you up with a few cracker jokes, because what I'm going to talk to you about today is absolutely crackers. It's crackers in the natural, it's crackers in the spiritual, and it's Christmas crackers too, so I thought I'd go. And I got these from the top ten Christmas cracker jokes. And number ten is from Gary in the UK, and he says, Did you hear about the two ships that collided at sea? One was carrying red paint, and the other was carrying blue paint. All the sailors ended up being marooned. It's <laughs> a good one. See why it was number 10, can't you? It gets worse, I'll tell you. It probably gets better. Right, David McWurter. Oh, there's a name. Right, from the UK. Why did the man get the sack from the orange juice factory? Because he couldn't concentrate. These are real, these, these must be Marks and Spencer's crackers, mustn't they? The right posh, these ones. Um, Daniel Huntley from Aberystwyth in Wales said, what? I love this one, this is number one, this is number one. What's E.T. short for? Because he's only got little legs. <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, I thought you'd like that one. Right, okay. So basically, my job today is to talk to us about what is the meaning of Christmas. Um, those that were J. John the other night, uh, he, he had a cracking meaning for Christmas. He said, if you take Christ out of Christmas, what are you left with? M&S. And to many people, Christmas is just about shopping, it's about frenetic frenzy and getting around the shops, making sure everything's in, spending loads of money. And really, it's just a couple of days holiday, isn't it? The bottom line is, but we absolutely go mad with this sort of stuff. Um, to some people, the baby Jesus is just a little baby Jesus. And, you know, he's not really that exciting. He was just a baby Jesus. There was a lot of mythology written about him. doesn't really mean a lot. You know, he's sort of like Gucci Gucci Coo sort of little thing. And so it's really little and incidental, isn't it, really? And yet to some people, it's about party, party, party. Go out, get as much down as you can, you know, live the good life, whatever that means, and have a rotten hangover the next day, which I don't really understand. But really... What the Christmas story is all about, and what we celebrate as Christians, so you can decide for yourself whether you celebrate as a Christian or not, right? It's, a, it's about God's love. And one of the things that amazes me is, if you ever read the Bible from beginning to end, which is a difficult job, I must admit, but with some guidance, it is an absolute complete story. It starts off in this wonderful place that God creates, called the Garden of Eden representation of this new planet, this new earth. And he builds into it such amazing creatures, birds, everything. And after every day of his work, he looks at it and he says, Oh, that's good. That's good. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't look at the earth today and say, That's good. That's good. And that's what we're going to get onto in a minute. Because when he made it, it was absolutely perfect. And in that garden... He put a guy to tend it. He made man, it says. Took him from the dust of the field. Now, whether you believe this stuff or not, that's fine. That's all right. I'm actually a scientist, and I'm finding there's more evidence now for creation than there is for actually evolution. And creation, the church using creation, is, is clawing some scientific ground back. 
And there's a lot of stuff that's in Genesis that is actually now being proven scientifically. But anyway, he loves this guy. And I can just imagine him, you know, walking around the garden with Adam and the, the real big buddies, they were close together and he'll be teaching him stuff and he'll be showing him stuff. And wow, what a fantastic life, a lot different from how we live life today. And I can just imagine that one day, there's Adam looking at all these animals and he's thinking, there's two of them, oh look what they're doing, kissing each other and stuff like that, what's all that about? And, and there's two of them, and, and there's two of them, and, and God looks down and he goes, yeah, I think we better make Adam a partner. We better make him helpmate too, because he does look a bit lonely down there, even though he's got me. So he creates Eve, and then we get the start of civilization, if you like. And I can just imagine that, you know, at some point God is watching Adam and Eve, and he comes down on a night, and he looks over that balcony from heaven, and he goes, oh, look at them. They're just fantastic. They, they reflect me. He reflects me. She reflects him. He reflects her. Between them all, we reflect each other. What a fantastic setup I've created. This is absolutely wonderful. This is beautiful. And one of the pictures that I hold dear to my heart of God's love for us is like, you know how us dads, when we get our first babies, we sit them on our knee when they get to a certain age, and we get the animals books out and we go, what's that? And the kid goes, zebra. Yeah, we go, that's fantastic, because we write chuff, don't we? When, when as dads, you know, when our kids start to learn things, we go, what's that one? Uh, monkey, yeah, that's right, that's my boy, that's my girl, that's how we like, isn't it, as dads. And you know, God actually sort of does that in a way, because he gave Adam the job of naming all the animals. And I can just imagine man sat on his knee, and God's going, go on Adam, what shall we call that one? And he goes, ooh, uh, fish, yeah, we'll have that one as a fish, and so on. In fact, you mate, so wrote a brilliant poem about this kind of thing the other night, didn't you, that you shared with us. That's the relationship I want you to get hold of, that God had with man. Now unfortunately it didn't last very long because we all know what happens next, that man does his own thing, he decides to be disobedient to God, and of course nothing that's pure and holy can stand in God's presence, so God has to put a separation in place. And from that moment on, right, God is pained and in trouble and weeping because he has lost that relationship that he had with man. So I want us to get a hold of just how much love... God has for us as human beings, right? And the Bible story is quite simply, it's God's search to bring man back into relationship with him. It's a phenomenal story. And of course, he does that. And that's right through Jesus, right in the middle. And basically, if you take the story of the birth of Jesus out of the Bible, you might as well just throw the rest in the bin, because it won't mean a thing to us, as individuals, as people, as a human race, or whatever. Because Jesus is absolutely central to the Bible, and he's in the Bible right from the Old Testament, right through the New Testament, right to the very end. Because the end of the story is, is that God does win, he does get his creation back in relationship with him, through Jesus, and one day we live again with him in that awesome, beautiful, new heaven and new earth, where there's no sickness, there's no sleepiness, there's no misery, there's no... All these things that get us down in life, it's gone. Because we'll be restored into relationship with God, our creator, one more time. Well, for the final time, actually. There's a couple of Bible accounts um, in the Bible about this long-awaited Messiah. The first, well, there's two, actually. One's in Luke and one's in Matthew. And they both seem to be very different, and they are very different for very good reasons. And one is because Matthew, right, was writing to Jewish believers, people who become Christians, to give them support in arguments that they were having with the, the traditional Jews, the, um, 
what they call the, yeah, the, the Jewish uh, temple system and the people of it, about the newfound faith. And he was proving to them, giving, giving those Christians lots and lots of opportunity to look at the Old Testament prophecies, the things that uh, Owens talked about last week, and to prove to them categorically that Jesus was the, the, the long-awaited for Messiah. And of course, unfortunately, they still didn't accept that. And even today they haven't accepted that, so they're still looking for Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, for the first time. We as Christians, we know he's been, because we can look at Luke's account, right? And we can know with certainty, and with history on our side, that he has actually been, and we can look forward to him coming again. And that I find so exciting. I really do find that exciting. Okay, so let's have a look at Luke. We'll start off with Luke 1. And the point I want to draw out here is that Luke says, Many had undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So Luke, he's actually doing a research document. And because he's a clever fella, he's believed to have been a doctor, Dr. Luke, right? He's used to scientific investigation, however they did it then. And so he goes into things with a fine detail and he teases out truth. And he separates the truth from the rubbish. And he says, look, Theophilus, the governor, whoever he, this high official is writing to, this is fact. I've talked to the people who were there. I've written it down. It might not be chronologically correct, but these things actually happened. And he goes on and he says, <coughs> um, Therefore, since I have myself carefully, this is his words, investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about today, the certainty, absolute certainty, of the things that you've been taught. And I want to say that preparing this little talk today has not been easy. It's been the most complicated Bible study I've ever done in my life. Because, it, because Jesus is the central character to the Bible, and he has his roots right from the beginning of time, and right through to the end of time. So as I said, it's like, a, it's like a network of Jesus everywhere you look in the Bible, if you look. Owen took us through the prophecies last week, the words that were given. Today I'm going to take some of the prophetic pictures that are in the Bible and expound on them a little bit further forward. So we can be sure that what Luke is writing about is absolutely accurate, because he's, he's that kind of guy, and he's written it down detail by detail. Luke, though, tells us that there were shepherds there in um, chapter 2. He also gives us some historical facts so we can check stuff out. He says, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Historically correct. That did actually happen. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Cyrenia. Historically correct. That did actually happen. And everyone who went to his own, everyone went to his own town to register. That's how he did, because your family documents, mine would be in Darlington, for instance, we'd have to troll off up to Darlington. Um, when they're annoying, I think he was in Southampton, he would have to go to Southampton. That's how it was in those days without computers. So again, we've got historical basis, an historical fact that Luke quotes, right, with eyewitness accounts, and the main account that he talks about, apart from the birth itself, is shepherds being at the, at the, at the birth. Now, have you ever wondered, why shepherds? Because I did. Why shepherds, Lord? Why do we have shepherds at the birth of Jesus? Why not uh, carpenters? Because his dad was a carpenter. Well, his stepdad was a carpenter. Um, why not sailors? Why not some soldiers? But he had shepherds. 
And one of the things I discovered, and this is what Messianic Jewish people believe, these are solid Jewish believers who have found Christ and converted to Christ, they have such a knowledge of the Bible, it's like, whoo, it blows you away. One of the things I found was, was that Bethlehem was the area where the temple lambs were raised. You get it? What was special about the temple lambs? They were the ones that were sold, right, as Passover lambs, as your, your lamb for clearing your sin against God, right, for you to offer as a sacrifice in the temple. And the Messianic Jews would suggest that these guys, these shepherds, were temple workers, paid for by the temple, who looked after the lambs. And one of the descriptions we have of Jesus throughout the Bible is, the Lamb of God. Bit of a clue there. So shepherds, the people who would tend the sheep for the sacrifice, were at Jesus' birth. And we know later on that Jesus was actually sacrificed at the time of the Passover lamb being slaughtered. There's historical accuracy there about the time. We know that at the time that Passover lamb was due to be slaughtered, it wasn't slaughtered. That's in history. But Jesus was as the sacrificial Passover lamb for all who would believe in him. And I, oh man, I just found that an awesome thought. That shepherds were there, temple shepherds, probably temple workers at the birth, tending to the new, the brand new lamb of God that was born. That is awesome. That's a powerful thought. Wise men, Matthew cites, <coughs> following a star. Is that possible, I ask myself. Well, one of our teachers got excited the other month because he actually, we've got this program at school and what you can do is you can program into it, it's called Starry Night, right, the sky, like today, over Doncaster, and you can see exactly what the, what the stars should be there, the planets, the constellations. So we have this thought, well let's wind it back in time, because you can put any date in you want. Let's look at it from Babylon, you can put that date in, and guess what, what it said on the, the net about the possibilities of this star of Bethlehem being there, it's there. It is absolutely amazing. And when you look, again, this is, this is true science, this isn't like, oh, biblical mythology, <laughs> throw it in the bin, this is truth. Right? When you look and start looking at what those stars meant and what was going on there, there's no wonder those wise men got off the backsides and went scooting across to Bethlehem. No wonder at all. Because those wise men in those days, in, in Babylon, <coughs> right, they were your leading scientists of the day, in a sense. They were the ones who, who weren't just like these, you know, Tuppensafety astrologers we have now. These guys would have been handed down information about what to look for in the sky and all that kind of thing. Absolutely amazing stuff. And I just pulled this bit off the web because it said the, Bab the Magi were Babylonian astrologers. Astrology places particular importance on the motion and the position of the planets. If we look at the night sky during period 3 to 2 BC, we can find a very likely candidate for the star of Bethlehem. On August the 12th of 3 BC, <laughs> we put that in the computer, it was there, right? There occurred a conjunction of Venus and Jupiter, that means a lining up. Right, if you look at that from Babylon, right, you will see, they would have seen that lining up of those two particular um, uh, planets. That would have particular significance to astrologers who have knowledge of the prophecy of the birth of Jesus. On that morning, that lining up of Venus and Jupiter took place in the constellation of Leo. Get that. Leo. 
Who's Jesus when he comes again? Come on, let's hear it. He's the Lion of Judah. And that constellation was lining up in Leo. This is why they got excited, why I get excited too. Right, on that morning, da, 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 near the star Regulus. Do you know what Regulus means? Little king. Little king. Leo was the tribal sign of Judah. To the Babylonians, Jupiter was the king planet. So you got the big king, you got Venus the Virgin lining up, and you get Regulus the little king appearing. That is exciting stuff, guys. If you're excited about that, are you? God, come on. That is exciting. This is 3 and a half BC. On a particular day, this actually happened. <clears throat> and even on our little school computer package, we can see it. It's fantastic. Absolutely amazing. Red, uh, Regulus was Sharu, the little king. Venus was named for Ishtar, the chief Babylonian goddess who was associated with femininity. Astrology, astrologically, this was a very, very important conjunction. This is one that gets all these key astrologers out of bed on the morning, gets them on the camels and gets them to look for it. Because this just isn't the king of Judah that's being born. This is a king that's far superior to all kings and any king that would be born. By the way, do you know how many uh, kings there were? Uh, major there were that went to see him. Come on, Bible scholars, how many were there? Go on, have a guess. Oh, that's not a bad guess. Put your hands up if you think it's three. I'm going to teach you board now. <coughs> we don't know is the answer. We really don't know. We know there was three gifts. I imagine that the Babylon probably cleared out of astrologers that day. I reckon they were all there. They all wanted to see this thing. Yeah. And then on uh, September the 14th, Jupiter came into conjunction with Regulus, moved past it and appeared to stop and move backwards. Can you imagine that? So they're looking and they see this thing and it goes across to the west, then it goes back. Right? That's, that's takes some technical explaining that, but it is, it is actually possible. He didn't physically do that, it was us that were moving, but never mind. That's how it would appear to them. <coughs> Until it passed Regulus a second time on the 17th of February of 2 BC, and then a third time on May the 8th. Originally on June 17th of 2 BC, Jupiter and Venus again came into conjunction near Regulus, so close to appear as one shining light until they set in the west toward Jerusalem as seen from Babylon. Whew, that's fact. Now I'm sure Luke would have put that in his book if he had been around at the time, but that stuff hadn't been discovered then. The explanation for it, but that's fact. So we can say with certainty that yes, Jesus was born, right? That he wasn't going to be a great king, because these guys from the, the, you know, the, the biggest sort of astrological place in the, in the universe at the time were there. The shepherds were there. Temple courtiers will look after, the, look after the lambs and so on. Anyway, enough of the history. I just want to quickly move on. When we look at the Bible story, as I said, it does start in Genesis. It starts with this love of God. And God is so heartbroken and disappointed. You know, the way it's written, it can sound a bit hard, but he isn't. He can't stand, you can't stand, none of us can stand in God's presence without being, I don't know, burnt up, shriveled to a cinder or what? Because we're all from Adam. We need some way of coming back into relationship with God. So God looks around the earth and eventually he finds this guy Abraham. Right? And he says, I think I can trust this guy. I think me and him can do some covenanting, some business together. And so what he does is, he visits Abraham he says, get off your backside and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham does it. So he said, phew, 
this guy can actually believe what I'm saying. He can believe what I'm saying. Right? And when he gets in there, he promises that out of him will come a great nation, and out of that nation will come the Messiah, the Saviour of the world. The one that we can all get back into relationship with God, to God, through. Because you see, we can't without some way of doing it. We can't work our way there. <coughs> we really can't. It's impossible. This is where all the other religions have got it wrong. They think if they go around knocking on doors, doing things, doing this, doing that, we can't. Because God is looking for us to follow him. And that comes out of our own desire in our heart. Not out of ticking all the boxes. Because he doesn't want people like us making a mess of his new heaven. It's very simple really, the Bible, isn't it? From beginning to end, you can see what's going on. If he had us in the new heaven without some way of our sin being sorted out, our separation from God, we'd make a mess of it. He'd be looking again. But God doesn't do things twice, he does it once. And the interesting thing is, is that when we look at this story, back in Genesis, <coughs> eventually the son is born. Adam has to wait 20 odd years for that son to be born. Makes a few mistakes in the meantime, because we're all like that. But eventually that son is born. And then God says to himself, right, I'm going to really see if this covenant is working between us. This promise to each other, this bond with each other. So he says to Abraham, he says, <coughs> he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Imagine that. You're 80 year old when you get the promise. You probably wait another 20 years for the promise to be fulfilled. Your wife's barren. You have a miraculous birth. Right? And it doesn't look like unless God does something different, there's going to be another chance of that son being born again. And he says to him, take that son and sacrifice him. And he doesn't say once, he doesn't say, but hang on God, this, this is the son of promise. This is the one you promised me about. He just says, okay God, I trust you. I believe that you will do something miraculous, spectacular, that you will spare that son somehow or other. You'll either bring him back from the dead. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? Or else you'll do something else. Can you see how important this Christmas story really is? It goes right back to the roots of Genesis. It's awesome. And what happens is, of course, Isaac trots along with his dad. Again, Messianic Jews, which is very interesting. They would suggest from their history, whatever, they've got all these old books and things, that this wasn't some little boy who went trotting along with daddy. They would suggest it was somebody about Tim's age. Somebody who was mature, who also was party to... Oh, sorry, Tim, sorry. Maybe Mark's age then. No, no, a bit younger. But somebody around about late 20s, mid to late 20s. This is what they say. I'm, taking, yeah, I'm just going along with it. Helps to add to the story, doesn't it? So he would have gone willingly, but he would have to, wouldn't he? He would have to understand what's going on so he could have faith and trust. Because if, if God was going to bring about this great nation and out of that great nation bring the Messiah... Oh yeah, there was some relationship there. So anyway, they went, and they went to Mount Moriah. And of course, the story goes that they arranged the wood on the, on the altar. <coughs> the lad jumped up on top, and he bound him, and he, he gets the knife, and just as he's about to sacrifice him, an angel intervenes and says, Don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. I know that you fear God, because you have not even withheld your son from me. 
And Abraham looked up. And there in a thicket. He saw a ram. Caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it. And Abraham called that place. The mountain of the Lord where it will be provided. Do you see any pictures there? Come on Bible scholars. Do you see any pictures there? A dad took his son up a mountain. To sacrifice him. Right? And at the last minute. He gets stopped from sacrificing him. What does he get? He gets a ram. Now a ram is not one of them little fluffy things that you see on the Cecil B. DeMille films. It's a Passover sized ram. Up to one years old. Big buck snorting. In the prime of its life. Just like Tim and Mark. <laughs> right? And anybody else who's my age and their age. Right? And Joe. <coughs> right? And Baz. But it's caught by a thicket of thorns. What did Jesus wear when he went to the crucifixion? The Lamb of God with a crown of thorns on his head. Right? Do you know where Mount Moriah is? Is it the where Jesus actually Yes, it's the same mountain, it's the same area where Jesus was crucified. And do you know what I reckon? I reckon God so loved us that much that he said, Well, if this man will sacrifice his son for, for me then I will sacrifice my son for all them who will believe in him. Because you see, Abraham's blessing didn't come just because of the thing. well, it didn't really come because of the things he did. It's because he believed God. The Bible tells us that because he believed God, let me just find it. Here, uh, this is Genesis 5-6. Abraham believed the Lord and he, that's God, credited to him as righteousness. So this pattern was set. We are made righteous through accepting what Christ has done on the cross for us. And God did what Abraham wanted for his son if he'd gone through it. He brought him back to life. So we cannot escape the fact of history. We cannot escape that prophetic picture of God the Father and the Son going up Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. We cannot, we cannot walk away from that. You, you can't even say, poo-poo it, because if you do, you're ignorant. We can't do it. We've got to look at it. We've got to think about it. We've got to say, what does that mean to me? And to be honest, if that's the only way that we can come into relationship with Christ, uh, with God, through belief which will be credited to us as righteousness of what Jesus did on the cross you can't, you can't just ignore it you really can't for all sorts of reasons it's history it's theology it's prophecy it's real stuff so what is the true meaning of Christmas? well the true meaning of Christmas is quite simply God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The true meaning of Christmas is the celebration of this incredible act of love. Born out by history. Born out by prophecy. Born out through theology. We can't escape it. If you don't know who this Jesus Christ is. It's time we started looking. Because if you want to live in eternity. In that wonderful. Fabulous. New heaven. New earth. Then we need to know him.
because apart from that, I'm not going to talk about it. The real Christmas story is the story of God's becoming a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. Why did God do such a thing? Because he loves us. Why was Christmas necessary? Because we needed a saviour. You see, we were the ones that were cut off from God. We were the ones that were, if you like, in the little boat that was now separated from the mothership. And it doesn't matter how hard we paddle, we can't get back there. Why does God love us so much? Because God is love himself, it says in 1 John 4, 8. Why do we celebrate Christmas each year? Out of gratitude for what God did for us. Yep, the date isn't accurate. But you've got to blame the Romans for that. Because they, when they converted to Christ, they took, that, they took their celebrations then and Christianized it. So that's okay. We can live with that. The important thing is the process. We remember his birth by giving gifts to each other, worshipping him and being especially conscious of the poor and less fortunate. The true meaning of Christmas is love. God loved his own and provided a way, the only way for us to spend eternity with him. He gave his only son to take our punishment for our sin, our separation. He paid the price in full and we are free from condemnation when we accept that free gift of love. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. It's a complete book. It's a complete story. Take Christ out of it and there isn't a story. The birth of Jesus is the most complex thing I've ever looked into because it has its roots everywhere in the Bible. In verbal prophecy, in pictorial prophecy. If you don't know this, this Christ, this Jesus... Now's the time because you could become born again, rejoined spiritually back to God. And know that love that only God can give us. And the funny thing is that in this world today, everyone is still searching for a star. But they're all looking in the wrong places. They need to be looking not only for a baby, but for a real living person today. Because he, the God of creation, brings healing brings salvation, brings restoration, brings peace. He's coming soon. We know that. The Jews are in the promised land. You can find out about that in there. A nation was formed in a day. That's a prophecy that came true. Tick. But this time, he's not coming as the Lamb of God. He's coming for his people. Those who believe on him. Those who have been rejoined to him. And he's coming as the Lion of Judah to bring judgment to rule and reign with his people. I would suggest if you're not in that band, you want to be in it. I'll leave it to you to think about. And if anybody does need prayer today for healing, or to know God through Jesus, then there's plenty of people here, Owen, Moena, Carrie, Chris, yeah, plenty of people who can help you. Just come and talk to us quietly afterwards. Because he is real, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. Isn't that awesome? We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 